0: Today we're continuing our series on counterfeits. I want to speak to you today about counterfeit morality. The first scripture we're going to look at is Luke chapter 11, verse 46, and we'll be looking at a number of other scriptures as well. If you've ever been in a small group that I'm leading, you know I have a policy, no politics. My rationale has changed concerning that rule. It used to be that the reason talking politics was forbidden was because it was kind of like kissing a vacuum cleaner. For reasons you never really understand, Putting your lips up to the hose on that vacuum may seem like a good idea. But once you do it, you find it's pretty hard to break loose. I have literally had to wrap up small group Bible studies because the group was stuck on politics and we couldn't break loose. But my reason has changed. Today, the main reason I stay away from politics is because of what I consider in our society to be a zero-tolerance policy. Intolerance that damages relationships, intolerance that leads to disintegration of communication, and sometimes to the dissolving of friendships. It seems these days that when you speak your position on any social issue or any political issue, you risk encountering not only disagreement, but you find you've offended someone to the point where they won't even talk to you and they might avoid you. This in spite of the fact that we all know that disagreement is healthy. This in spite of the fact that we know that friendships are essential for healthy living and we should never dissolve them. Here's a crazy thing to me. The things about which we have zero tolerance are often the things that arise from a counterfeit morality. Let me say that again. The things about which we have zero tolerance are often things that arise from counterfeit morality. Counterfeit morality, it's something that isn't real. It's as phony as a $3 bill, and yet we often accept it and pass it along as though it were legal tender. I want to begin by discussing some important observations about counterfeit morality. First, it's important to realize that counterfeit morality is nothing new. If you study the Bible, you can see that it existed in Jesus' day. The morality police had developed a system of rules and regulations that kept people in line. It was a moral code, but it was a counterfeit moral code. We sometimes call it legalism. Jesus spoke of it in Luke 11, 46, where the scripture says, Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with heavy burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. What I want you to hear in that phrase, what I want you to hear in that verse, is this phrase, burdens they can hardly carry. Humans often develop a system of morality that is simply overwhelming. Philip Yancey speaks of it in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? This book is a couple decades old, and still, (laughs) it's very popular, because that which we're talking about, counterfeit morality, is still very prevalent. Listen to Yancey's words. Over time, the spirit of law-keeping stiffens into extremism. I know of no legalism that does not seek to enlarge its domain of intolerance. The scribes and Pharisees who studied Moses' law, for example, tacked on many additions. Rabbi Eliezer the Great specified how often a common laborer should be intimate with his wife. Think about that for a moment. So how often should we... Let's go check with a rabbi. Let me just tell you, don't come and check with me on that. I'm not going to have an answer for you. A woman could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. Whatever Moses had said the Pharisees could improve on, you shall not commit adultery, led to Pharisees' rules against talking or even looking at women who were not your wife. Now, God never commanded these things. These are rules that are invented by people. Man-made morality existed in Jesus' day. It has always existed in the church. If you look at the early church, you learn that the Christians were even more extreme than the Pharisees. In the first few hundred years after Jesus ascended to the Father, we find the church being even more radically bound to a man-made morality than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Yancey addresses this. By the fourth century, monks were living on a diet of bread, salt, and water. One specific sect of monks lived in forests and grubbed for wild herbs and roots. Some wore only a long loincloth of thorns. Think about that for a minute. Okay, let's stop thinking about that right now. Christians in the United States have had their own flings with extremism. Yancey notes that the great revivalist Charles Finney refrained from coffee and tea and had roles at the college he instituted in Ohio, Oberlin College that said no mustard, no vinegar, no stimulants of that nature were allowed to be served. It's not just inside the church, however. Counterfeit morality flourishes outside of the church. We're not instructed to eat a diet of bread, salt, and water, but are you feeding your family organic food? That may be a good rule of thumb, but it's a man-made rule. We're not instructed to wear a loincloth of thorns, thank God, but is that real fur you're wearing? Look, you may have personal feelings about that, but those are your feelings. And there's no way in the world you're going to make a case from Scripture that that's wrong. Remember, when Adam and Eve need clothing, God killed an animal and clothed them. We're not instructed to abstain from coffee, but surely you're drinking fair trade coffee, right? I like fair trade but must one insist on it? And if I wear these rules as badges, what does that say about me? Does that smell like self-righteousness to you? Look, if you're doing things like this, that's great. I encourage you to do them. But when you begin to define your worth, your value, and your holiness by adhering to these kinds of rules, and when you judge everyone else by these man-made rules, you're probably dealing with the subject at hand, counterfeit morality. We're going to look at a second passage of scripture in a moment. It's Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. The automobile company Lexus used to have a slogan in their commercials. Do you remember it? Lexus, the relentless pursuit of perfection. Is that what we're looking for morally speaking? Well, yes and no. We desire to be holy and to be pure. Christians should want that, but we don't pursue it as though it were a burdensome thing to do. We pursue it as something already procured for us. When Paul speaks of our pursuit of holiness, he speaks of God's grace. Listen to him in Philippians 3.12. He says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He knows and admits his shortcomings without fear. Because genuine morality is not based in fear. It is filled with grace. Listen to how confidently he leans in to this grace. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Wait, wait, wait. You know what's behind, right? The morality of the law. Like everyone who has struggled with legalism, Paul was a professional counterfeiter. Now understand, there is a goal, but we don't pursue it laboriously. We pursue it joyfully. We press toward it, empowered by grace. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus, he says. He can do that because he understands the morality that is filled with grace. Counterfeit morality knows nothing of real grace. Counterfeit morality is a tool whereby you can put someone in their place. It is as though it is designed to make you feel bad about yourself and hopeless. And so it creates hypocritical people, pretending they have virtue, virtue that they do not have. Counterfeit morality feels like a heavy weight, because that's exactly what it is. And third, counterfeit morality is dogmatically unforgiving. You messed up, that's it. There's no hope. Counterfeit morality does not look at sin and find a pathway to restoration through repentance. There's no redemption. It's a morality of zero tolerance. You're fired. You're not going to be on this network anymore. Your ministry here is over, buddy. And you're not a friend to anybody. You're not my friend. Counterfeit morality is downright demonic. That's why I want to talk to you about the root of counterfeit morality. In one word, it's Satan. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 16. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that Satan actually develops two kinds of false morality. First, the non-existent morality. There are no rules in chaos and anarchy and bedlam reign. And he develops a burdensome morality, one that steals, kills, and destroys and condemns. Satan uses counterfeit morality in his role as accuser. You know, when the Bible speaks of Satan's demise, it says, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Until his demise, Satan will use counterfeit morality. He will either give you a moral code that you cannot satisfy, or he will give you a moral code that is simply unreal, leaving you to walk the pathway of destruction. Speaking of destruction, Satan uses counterfeit morality in his role as destroyer. Peter says, be alert and sober. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And he will use counterfeit morality to devour your time, your energy, your faith, your hope, your peace, and your joy. And he will leave you filled with anger. Do you know angry Christians? Do you know Christians who are angry? They're probably dealing with a counterfeit morality. And perhaps most relevant to us in this day and age, is Satan uses counterfeit morality? in his role as a divider. There's a passage that comes into my mind several times a week. I literally think of this passage over and over and over again. It's Proverbs chapter 6. I asked you to turn there a moment ago, starting at verse 16. It begins and says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Okay, I'm going to need to take a moment and just explain how Hebrew literature works in this kind of a setting. When it says there are six things God hates, seven that are detestable to him, that means that number seven is the really bad one. I mean, these six are awful, but number seven, wow, that's the bad one. That's how the literature is working here, according to Hebrew scholars. So what are the first six? Verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies. Those are some bad things, right? Hands that shed innocent blood, I can't think of anything worse than that. What could be worse? Well, in God's mind, verse 19, number 7, is the worst. And a person who serves up conflict in the community. (laughs) Satan does that, and God hates it. Satan creates judgmentalism, intolerance, and false pride. He creates division. Counterfeit morality comes straight from the prince of darkness. Now, turn to Romans 16. We're going to start about verse 25 there. Because I want to talk to you about how to identify and how to find genuine morality. Where do you find genuine morality, Pastor Steve? Well, the easy answer, the predictable one, is God. Genuine morality comes from God. But if I say that, you may legitimately ask, why do you believe that, Pastor Steve? How do you figure that? And I would give you a number of reasons. I'm going to give you four this morning first, because God is wise, second, God is gracious, third, God is redemptive, and fourth, God is tireless. And those are essential elements in genuine morality. Let's look at them one at a time. Genuine morality comes from the only wise God. In the closing word of the biblical book of Romans. The text honors God by saying, Now unto him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes through faith. To the only wise God, there's a phrase, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The God of Scripture is the only wise God. And you cannot have wisdom without the only wise God. And you cannot have morality without wisdom. Take some time this week to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Take some time and look at the wisdom that Jesus demonstrates. I can remember I'd never read those books through until I went to college. I was sitting in the dorm reading how Jesus silenced his critics, how he, he put the people who were against the people— in their place. And I was amazed by his insight, his behavior, his teaching, his perspectives, how they overflowed with wisdom without containing an ounce of hatefulness. The only wise God. He is a source of genuine wisdom. Second, it comes from the gracious God. I would guess in the past several months, we have read Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, maybe half a dozen times. I keep coming back to this invitation that Jesus offers, discovering deeper truths every time we read it. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 28 of Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What do you suppose you're weary and burdened by? Maybe a lot of things. Life is wearisome at times. But I think, I think that he's talking about being weary and burdened by a counterfeit morality. That's part of what he's saying. Because in verse 29, the very next verse, he says, take my yoke upon you. And we know that the yoke of a rabbi was a teaching of the rabbi. So he's saying, take my teaching upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my teaching is easy, and my burden is light. What I saw as I was preparing this message about that passage that kind of fits here into the gracious God who gives us real morality. This passage follows a harsh rebuke from Jesus for cities he'd visited who had rejected his message. And one of the common reasons that Jesus' message was rejected was because those who were listening could not let go of their own self-imposed morality. They insisted that they would be seen as righteous before God because they were better than everyone else. Their self-righteousness was based on a counterfeit, morality. And it has no value. It's like monopoly money. Real morality comes from a gracious God, and Jesus personifies grace. The Bible says Jesus is full of grace and truth. And when a moral viewpoint is undergirded by grace, then it becomes easy to engage that morality. The yoke is easy, the burden is light. Genuine morality comes from a gracious God. Genuine morality comes from a redemptive God. Redemption has to do with taking that which has no value or that which has lost its value and giving it value. So, when the bumpus hounds eat your Christmas turkey and it's all over the floor and they're going out the door and you're looking and saying, Bumpuses! How do you redeem that? Here's how you redeem it. You send everybody upstairs to get dressed and you take your family to the Chop Suey Palace and you give them a Christmas that would live in their memories as the Christmas when they were introduced to Chinese Turkey. Redemption does something counterfeit morality could never do. It reminds you that all could be right with the world. Redemption is seen throughout Scripture. It is part of the nature of God to be a redemptive God. Redemption is... What you read about in the life of Jacob's son, Joseph, who said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Redemption. Genuine morality comes from a God who can take our moral failures and create something beautiful from them. Redemption. Its power may well be unparalleled. Genuine morality comes from a redemptive God. And genuine morality, it comes from a tireless God. Counterfeit morality creates exhaustion and defeat. It makes you stumble and fall and grow weary and tired. Genuine morality, it renews your strength. Do you not know? Have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God tirelessly transforms something more than our behavior. He transforms and energizes our hearts and our lives so we can follow him as we live an abundant life based in the real morality that flows from Jesus Christ. He changes us, and the outcome is newness of life. The tireless God tirelessly renews his people. One more passage of Scripture. If you would, please turn to Romans 8. And as you turn there, let me ask you this. Have you been exposed to counterfeit morality? You probably have. Maybe a Christian exposed you to counterfeit morality. Maybe even someone you loved and still love to this day held up an impossible standard and the yoke you were given was difficult and the burden you were given feels crushing at times. Or maybe it's a different kind of counterfeit morality. Maybe there's a family member who doesn't approve of your voting record and they have made that the issue of their relationship with you. Or maybe someone at work is just really good at projecting false... Virtue, and uses it as a tool of moral one-upmanship in his relationship with you and others there. Or maybe it's you. Maybe you yourself have accepted a counterfeit morality and you have found that you are promoting legalism as though it were genuine holiness. The closing verses of Roman 8 teach us the power of genuine morality that's found in the wisdom, the grace, the redemption, and the tirelessness of God. I'm going to start reading at verse 33. And I want you to hear those things, those elements in this passage. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall so trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Genuine morality is marked by the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the redemptive power of God, and the tireless working of God. And today, I want to pray that we would see the source of that genuine morality. Jesus Christ, who loved us, gave himself for us, and is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if we have accepted a counterfeit morality, we repent of that. Forgive us for thinking we know better than you. We reject the counterfeit morality in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we receive not a moral code, not a code of ethics, but we receive a person to guide us and walk with us and move us toward holiness and to make us more like himself, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may, as we commune with you through your word and by your spirit, may we receive the genuine morality marked by the wisdom, grace, redemptive power, and tireless work of you, God. We want to be holy, but not because we're good at keeping some list. We want to be holy because of the presence of the holy God within us. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.